Good morning, Doxa Church. Guys, it is, it is great to be together. Great to see everyone. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Rob, uh, one of the pastors here. Guys, honored to have you part of our family gathering today. I hope if you are new, kind of checking out Doxa, Intro to Doxa is just one of those places that we recognize it's, it's hard to find a, a church. And it's hard to like just jump into a church without knowing, hey, what do these people believe? What are they all about? And so hope to meet you there. If uh, you got to run out, man, come find me before you, you head out. I'd love the chance to, to meet you. But we're going to get into the Bible this morning. But as we get going, let me just ask you, have you guys ever had like just one of those weeks? You know, like this is one of those weeks for me, you know, like one of those weeks where you start off, you wake up. Monday morning and kind of you had the window open because it's cool, the birds are chirping, you're like, this is going to be amazing, right? And then you roll out of bed and the first experience you have is the intense pain from stepping on your son's micro machine, right? And then you're like, okay, this will get better. You go to take a shower and you realize the water heater broke and so now you're taking a cold shower. You're like, it's fine, I'm going to go down and have a nice cup of coffee. The coffee's out, okay? You're like, that's good. I'm just going to go to work and it's going to be fine. You back out of the garage and you run over your cat, right? It's just one of those weeks. And depending on your view of cats, like that may be a good week or a bad week. I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything, okay? Don't email me about that. But it's been one of those weeks, and, and we've all had those, you know. But, but guys, here's what happened to me in the midst of this type of week. Have you also had those times where you just kind of open up the Bible? You set out to meet with God, and God just kind of breaks in in like a really profound, personal way. And he just speaks to you through the scriptures. And it's like as you meet with him in those moments, it's kind of just like a, a cold cup of water on like a really hot summer day. Have you had those? Because this was, this was me this week as I got into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I feel like God just showed up and just met me in the moment and just, just gave me just a sense of peace in the midst of just a lot of chaos but this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited to, to talk to you guys today about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, because I really believe that God wants to do something in every single one of us. For those of you who are Christians, I really believe that God wants to speak to you today and give you certainty of your faith, that you would walk out of here kind of grasping this gospel in such a way that maybe you never have before and say, my faith is well-founded and grounded, and you walk out of here closer to God than you ever have before. Those of you, maybe you're, you're newer, a friend brought you, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, you're wrestling with questions of faith. I really believe that through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, God has brought you here to break in, in this moment, to open your eyes and to help you see who Jesus actually is. Not like a socially constructed Jesus, not an understanding of the church as the world sees it, but really a biblical view of who Jesus is and what he has done. So I think this is what he's gonna do. So grab your Bibles and find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. All right, and as you get there, we need to, to know what we're getting into, all right? Because what we're about to get into is a chapter dealing with one of the single most important doctrines of the Christian faith. All right, then in chapter 15, Paul is going to give us kind of the most robust understanding of the resurrection of Jesus in the Bible and what this means for every single person in this world and in this room. And this is so important for us to understand. All right? We have to understand the resurrection because everything else will not make any sense that we're really going to spend the next three weeks talking about this. 
All right, so today we're going to talk about like the details of the resurrection. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the theology of the resurrection, and then we're going to get into the necessity of the resurrection, and we're going to wrap up this chapter talking about the victory that we have in the resurrection. And as we get into this, okay, here's what you need to know. Since the earliest days of the Christian church, two categories of errors have really kind of just weaseled their way into the Christian faith. Errors that, on one hand, challenge orthodoxy, and then there's also errors that challenge orthopraxy, all right? So two words that we just need to know up front, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, and I'm just going to teach you what these words mean, okay? Orthodoxy is simply just right thinking or, or right believing. It's thinking correctly about God, the Bible, theology, Jesus, all of that. It's, it's believing and thinking correctly in terms of what the Bible teaches. Orthopraxy, on the other hand, is not so much about what we think and how we think, but how we live. All right, it's living our lives in alignment with what God teaches us through his word in the Bible. All right, so, so orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right living. Now, here's why this is significant. As we've been studying through the letter of 1 Corinthians for the last 25 plus weeks, the Apostle Paul, and you'll see this, he's been primarily addressing this church's errors in orthopraxy. All right, because Paul's writing this letter to a church in Corinth that he started several years before writing this letter, and he's writing to this church who has really just in many ways lost their way, and they were living in crazy ways that really they found themselves in, a, in opposition to God's will for their life and really just kind of living in a way that was completely antithetical to the gospel. And as we've been studying this, I mean, it's just been so clear to us. We look at these people and they're like, wow, they're doing crazy, crazy things. That the Christians in this city of Corinth, they were living their ways or their lives in ways that they had forgotten about the Christian virtue of love and peace and unity and humility and morality. They've forgotten all of these things that should be characterizing people who are growing in spirit-filled following Jesus. They've just forgotten about that. Now, it's not just throwing rocks at the, the Christians in Corinth, right? It's, it's not that at all. Because if you think about your life, if we're all honest, we all find ourselves in places like this at times, right? Am I the only one? Wow, this is a really holy church. This is great, okay? Because we do. That no matter how much we love Jesus, we fall short. No matter how much we love Jesus and try and follow in his words and his works and his ways, at times in every single one of our lives, we find ourselves struggling and losing our way just like the Christians in Corinth. And I think that's why this study has just been so helpful to us. Because I, I really hope that you guys don't walk out of this and we don't close the letter of 1 Corinthians and we have the thought like, wow, those Christians were really jacked up. Like, I, I hope that we don't have that, but rather I hope that we have the thought of like, wow, those Christians were really jacked up, and wow, so am I, and so is Doxa Church. But God, just as he was gracious and patient and helpful with the Corinthians, he is that to us as well, amen? This is who God is. And Paul's words here, they're not just a great challenge and help to the Corinthians, they're really just a great help to us as well as we navigate our everyday stuff of life here in Madison. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what Paul does is he makes like a sudden transition from addressing serious issues of orthopraxy to now addressing severe issues of orthodoxy. All right, he's, and he starts, if you look at this passage, he starts by reiterating to the Corinthians what he says is of first importance, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ which revolves around the resurrection. 
Because the Corinthians, they they weren't just living in crazy ways and getting into all kinds of sin, but they were thinking wrongly about the truths of God. And they were thinking wrongly about the gospel of Jesus. And, And I want you to hear this, guys. When we don't have right thinking, it will always lead to wrong living. This is a truth that we need to know. This is a big problem that was happening in Corinth. And Paul wants to be very clear that the resurrection is the rock bottom reality for the Christian. And that the resurrection literally affects everything about our lives. The gospel that we preach, the hope that we have, the forgiveness of sin that we stand in are only realities if the resurrection is actually true. And so we have some work to do in understanding the resurrection because Paul says this is of first importance and he's going to help us, okay? So we're just going to read this. Chapter 15, verse 1, and this is what the Apostle Paul has to say. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of first importance, I want you to circle that in your Bible, first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and, by, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Okay, so Paul As he wrote this, okay, we need to understand, here's what's going on in and around the church in Corinth. Located near Athens, really just the, the hub of the intelligentsia, some of the Christians in Corinth were beginning to be tempted to succumb to the pressure of just like philosophical respectability where they were denying the make or break doctrine of the resurrection. And this was happening, as, as Paul saw this, he, he realized that the very heart of orthodoxy was at stake. Because, guys, we just need to understand this, all right? If you're new to Christianity, you're figuring it out, and even if you are a Christian, we actually have to understand the gospel message is validated or deemed nonsense, depending on how we understand the reality of the resurrection. It's a really big deal, and this is why Paul is addressing this here. And what he basically says, all right, the Rob Warren version of chapter 15 is this, is that Jesus' miraculous bodily resurrection from the dead is not up for grabs. Paul says it never has been and it never will be. And people questioned that back then and they question it today, but Paul says it's not up for grabs because everything rises and falls on what is true of the resurrection of Jesus. And in these first 11 verses, all right, Paul focuses on three things to help the Corinthians and really us to understand this. And he's gonna show us that the resurrection is three things. Number one, he's gonna show us that it's historical, Number two, that it's essential. And number three, that it's personal. All right, so the first thing we need to know about the resurrection of Jesus is that it's historical. All right, this is a historical reality. And here's what I mean by historical. Paul's reminding the Corinthians as they question the resurrection that Jesus did, in fact, raise from the dead. And hear this. This is not rooted in spirituality. This is not rooted in tradition. But this is actually rooted 
in facts, historical facts. And we all need to be reminded of this. All right, Doc said, this is a book. We talk about this all the time. This is a book that God wrote. This is not just a spiritual book or a helpful book, but this is a book breathed out by God. And this is actually a historical book. Not just helpful, not just spiritual, but it's historical. Now, let me just recognize, I know that even as I say that, there's, there's probably people in a room this size that maybe you would kind of like push against that and have a hard time with that statement. So before we even dive into what Paul is saying here, I want to like step out of this and not just look at what the Bible says, but I want to look at what, the, what people outside of the Bible share about this, okay? Because many people will say, well, I don't know if I believe that the Bible is actually historical and factual, so why would I listen to Paul as authoritative, and why would I base my life on the truths that he claims to share here? And if you are thinking that, let me just validate you and say, that is a fair question. That is an absolutely critical question, and that's a question that you need to wrestle with, and we all need to wrestle with it, because it's not a question that we're afraid of, because this is actually a question that God has answers to. Creation has answers to. The Bible has answers to. And so if you are asking that question, let me help you with this and say this. If you study history, all right, one of the great historians that you'll be familiar with, you've probably read, is a man named Sir William Ramsey. All right, and, and Ramsey was recognized as one of the most famous scholars of world history, and he was known and respected all over the world as scholarly and a trustworthy historian an archaeologist. But Ramsey, as he studied world history, he noted rightly that Jesus was a man whom changed the world like no other person who has ever lived. And also, as he even more, he, he looked at this and he, he was intrigued that the Bible, as though just spread all over the world, the most printed book in the world, he was just questioning the historical facts and the claims that the Bible made. And as a historian, he really just doubted the historicity of the Bible specifically the Gospel of Luke, thinking that if anybody would actually spend some time in a scholarly, academic way researching the times and the dates and the places and the names that the Bible shares, that they would figure out rather quickly that this is not actually true. It's false and it's bad history. And so Ramsey, what he did is he decided to give many years to study this and, and look at the historical accuracy of the Gospel account, which chronicles the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, all of what Paul is talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is what he discovered. After all of his research, he came to the conclusion saying this, and I quote, Luke's history in his Gospel is unsurpassed in regard to its trustworthiness. He used names of actual people and officials, very specific details, and people as he searched it out. And it's emphatically true in a reliable history. And so we get to this point that his conclusion, after doing all of this archaeological work, all of this historical work, he comes to the conclusion that the Bible account of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection are actual history. It's, it's facts. And what Paul shares in this chapter is really actually the same thing that Luke shares in his two-part series of the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And so as we're reading this, guys, I just want you to understand, like, this is not just folklore. This is not myth. This is a historical book. We're reading actual history. And Paul has no hesitation in answering the Corinthians' doubts about the resurrection by means of historical evidence. And if you look back to verse 3, through seven, we can learn of some of these pieces of evidence to help us think rightly. Orthodoxy. Help us think rightly of the resurrection, which I think is going to be helpful for every sing single one of us in terms of like solidifying our faith. But look at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. All right, so what He does here is He gives us five historical realities that give historical credence to the resurrection of Jesus. And I want to go through these really quickly, okay? And you can talk about these later, but the first thing is the burial of Jesus. All right, verse four, Paul says, he was buried. Now, this is pretty straightforward, but so important to note. All right, because no one really, in this uh, radical kind of like scholar, scholars, quote unquote, will deny that Jesus Christ actually lived and walked on this earth. We know that historically there was a man named Jesus that actually lived, who was actually killed and was actually buried. Christians and non-Christians alike, we believe this. You don't have to have faith to understand that. But Jesus, if you know the account, was buried in a tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And this tomb was guarded by Roman guards. And his tomb was known and it was locatable at that time. And so people could check in. This is how we know that Jesus was actually buried. And Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Jewish council and the Jewish court that that condemned Jesus. And so this is likely not a fabricated thing by Christians to promote a myth. It would have made no sense. And so what this is pointing to is that the burial of Jesus actually happened. Historical fact, pretty basic, okay? Now secondarily, not only was he buried in a tomb, but if you look back to verse 4, there was in fact an empty tomb. It says, verse 4, he was raised on the third day. So three days after his burial, the, t- the tomb of Jesus was found empty. Now we ask questions and we come to histor- history and trying to figure out the past, but who found the empty tomb of Jesus? It was women. Women that were following Jesus. And the fact that women are mentioned as, as follow- the ones that found the tomb of Jesus, to us, that doesn't seem like a big deal. We're like, okay, yeah, that's, that's great. But you need to understand, in first century Palestine, a woman's testimony was not considered worthy in a court. It was just worthless. No one listened to women. And this fact alone, that the Bible records that women discovered the tomb of Jesus, actually gives credence to the historicity of the resurrection account Because the Bible writers, they didn't use like strong witnesses. They didn't come up with these officials and these high-ranking men, but they just simply said, this is what happened. These women found the empty tomb. And it was empty. And the reality is, is that everybody agrees that the tomb was empty. But the historical question is this. By what means? And this is where we get into different perspectives of the resurrections. It was either by the means of resurrection or it was some other explanation. And this goes into the third historical reality, and it's this. It's the testimony of Scripture. All right, back to verse 4. Paul says he was raised in accordance with the Scripture. And so as he's doing this, as Paul is sharing this historicity of the, of the resurrection, he now points and he references the numerous prophecies recorded in the Bible about Jesus' resurrection. All right, so for example, if you're familiar with the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 53, roughly 700 years before the birth of Jesus, The prophet Isaiah promised that Jesus would be born into a humble circumstance, he would live a simple life, he would die a brutal death, and then he would raise back to life to take away the sin of the world. Isaiah chapter 53. And this all happened just as Isaiah said. And even more, Jesus predicted his own resurrection. 
On, on numerous occasions throughout history record, records that Jesus plainly promised that he would die and then three days later he would raise. And guys, we could honestly, we could spend a whole sermon series looking at these prophecies, but here's the point. Paul simply just says, Scripture and prophecy were fulfilled by the resurrection. And he repeats this phrase, if you look, according to the Scriptures, he repeats this twice to emphasize, hey, this is not actually a new thing, but this is a historically foretold thing that Jesus accomplished in an actual historical event. Now, the fourth historical reality. We need to consider what he talks about in verses 5 through 8 about these post-resurrection appearances that Jesus had. That we see that Jesus appeared to a bunch of people after his death and his burial. And if you just think about like the court of law, right? That throughout history, the testimony of responsible and honest eyewitnesses is considered to be the most reliable forms of evidence in a court. This is still true today. This wasn't just an antiquity thing. It's still emphatically true today. And Paul here, he points to all these eyewitnesses as really just a historical evidence of the resurrection. Right? In, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus appears to all of his, the early church leaders after he was buried. And if you just stop, and if we just said Jesus appeared to all these early church leaders, if that was all he appeared to, then it would be really easy to understand why a lot of people would doubt the legitimacy of these sightings. Because they were just groupthink, and they were all just trying to promote like a myth or a lie or anything like that. But Paul appeals to a crowd of more than 500 people. And he qualifies that this isn't just a crowd of 500 people that you'll never be able to find. He says, most of which are still alive. He says, some have died, but you can go and you can talk to these people and they will either validate or dismiss this claim. So just consider that, guys. 500 people who didn't have a category for seeing a dead person raised back to life. They had all claimed to see Jesus Doc said, this is a historical reality that we just have to do something with. You, if you deny this, you just have to answer what happened here. And then finally, the fifth historical reality of the resurrection is this, is that the apostles' reaction to the resurrection. Look at verse 7. He appeared, it says, to all of the apostles. Now, think about what happened after the death of Jesus. And I want you to think about the spread of Christianity after Jesus was killed and then resurrected. Guys, the stark reality is that Jesus' resurrection, that before this, the disciples were cowards and were full of fear. If you remember back to the, the crucifixion scene, Jesus is, is dying and being crucified, and after his death, the disciples just ran away. They hid in fear they didn't want to be arrested and killed like Jesus because they were following him. They wouldn't tell people about Jesus. They were just in hiding. Every single one of them was afraid. And as Paul mentions this man Peter, if you know your Bible, guys, this, we see this, this cowardice so clearly in Peter. Because as, P, as Jesus was being crucified, Peter is running away. And then all of a sudden, some young woman comes up to him and says, hey, aren't you that guy that's with Jesus? And Peter just says, no, you got it wrong. And three times, she's like, no, you're that guy. Peter's like, you don't have it right. I don't even know that man. He denies Jesus three times, right? Just, just afraid, a coward. But what happens next? Jesus is killed. He's buried. 
comes back to life and he presents himself to the disciples and 500 people and this changes everything. But all of a sudden, after seeing Jesus alive, after the resurrection, the disciples don't fear death anymore. And like Peter, they get bold. They start preaching. They start going to city to city telling people about the gospel. They're not afraid. And Peter, like many, are killed because of their faith. In fact, all of the apostles except for one are martyred. Peter actually gets crucified. But as history records, he actually requests that he gets crucified upside down for his faith because he didn't, wanna, he didn't think it was honorable to be crucified in the same way as his friend, his king, his savior, Jesus. And so again, guys, we come to this stuff and you just have to ask, how does a coward like Peter request to be crucified upside down? Just have to ask that. Guys, it's the historical reality of the resurrection. And if you look at the book of Acts, this account of the early church, after Jesus' resurrection, we see that there are 120 people following Jesus. But then after they see Jesus come back to life, they get bold, start telling everybody about the gospel, and Christianity explodes to a few billion people following Jesus today. There's simply no explanation for the birth of Christianity apart from Jesus' resurrection. All right, there's a guy named C.F.D. Mole, a professor at Cambridge University. He says it like this, and I quote, he says, the birth and the rapid rise of the Christian church remains an unsolved enigma for any historian who refuses to take seriously the only explanation offered by the church itself, the resurrection. So with these historical facts that Paul just lays out in front of us, guys, here's where this all puts us, every single one of us right now. These five realities just have to be explained. We have to explain this. And an actual historical re resurrection makes the most sense of the historical facts that we have before us. And if you are in a place that you're tempted to reject this, because I want you to know, like, you're welcome at Doxa, right? We love asking questions. We're all in different aspects of our walk of faith and trying to figure things out. But if you are in that place where you would just reject everything that I just said, what that means is that you are now tasked with coming up for a more compelling alternative explanation. So just listen to this. The resurrection is a historical event that has changed everything. This is the only reasonable explanation. But Paul, he doesn't just stop with the historical facts, all right? Because we can acknowledge the historicity of the resurrection without really just grabbing hold of the point of the resurrection. And this is the second thing that he, he talks about that the resurrection is actually essential. Look back to verse one. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All right, what Paul does here as he mentions this idea of the gospel, he really just lays out the essentials of the gospel. And the gospel literally means the good news. It's the good news of Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And what Paul here does 
is regarded by scholars as the seds doctrine, or really just the seat of doctrine as it comes to the gospel. And Paul just really just defines for the Corinthians and us what the gospel is in clear, simple terms. Paul answers the question that maybe some of you are asking as you sit here today is, what is the gospel? What is it? How would you define that? And so maybe you've, you've heard that word before, but you're somewhat unclear as to what it is. I want to clear this up for you today because Paul says this is of first importance. And so when we talk about the gospel, let me just explain it like this. Guys, if you just look around our world today, perhaps never in our lifetime have we seen our world and the people around us more concerned with the suffering of people. Whether it's in terms of like racial suffering or gender suffering or viral suffering or financial suffering or so many other different ways that people can suffer today. We live in a day and a time where it's almost vogue to have compassion for others and a sense of grief for this suffering. And that's all well and good and it's right and God sees this and he feels the same thing for the people that he created. But I just want you to hear this. If, if we are in a position where we're caring about the suffering of people, the most important suffering that we must concern ourselves with is not the immediate front and center suffering, but hear this, it's the eternal suffering of people. It's the eternal suffering that those who would die apart from faith in Jesus will have. This is why the resurrection is so essential that God saw the suffering of people he created and the eternal suffering that they are walking towards as a result of sin, and Jesus came. And Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that Jesus came to suffer, to die, and to raise so that eternal suffering doesn't have to be our end. That some of you, you need to know today as you're sitting here, some of you need to know that the biggest problem in every single one of our lives is not relational, it's not marital, it's not racial, it's not political, it's not financial, it's not occupational, it's none of that, but it's sin. Sin is at the root of all these problems that we experience and all the suffering that we experience in our life. And we talk about sin all the time because if there's no bad news, there can't be any really good news, there can't be any gospel news. The bad news is, is that the whole world, every single one of us, no matter how godly you think you are and how philanthropic you are and how generous you are, all of us are radically impacted by sin. That we all sin in word, thought, and deed. And sin is simply just missing the mark. It's living in a way, it's doing things that's in opposition to who God is and what God has said. And any, all of us are just radically infected by sin. And the nature of sin is it separates, and it separates us from God. So many people in this world, you feel like something is missing in your life. And we look, I've been there guys, I spent many years of my life doing this, and you look to fill that with other things. And you get to the end and you're like, well, that didn't do it. You go on to something else. It's because we feel this gap. We feel this chasm and we know something's off, but we just don't know what it is. Guys, it's that sin has separated us from God. And on our own, here is where we live. Apart from God. And that might not seem like a big deal. Because if our sin is not dealt with, reconciled and forgiven, this separation goes on for eternity and leads to eternal suffering apart from God. Now, pause, right? Because maybe you're, you're new and you're like, man, that's kind of a bummer, right? That's, that's heavy. And, and maybe you're like not a Christian. You're like, so why do you guys sing? 
Like I saw people with their hands up and people bouncing their hips and this is church. I don't know if you're supposed to do that, but you guys seem excited, right? Why? If this is the reality, how do you have any level of joy and excitement in here? And guys, I'm so excited to share the answer with that. Here it is. The two greatest words in the Bible. But God. But God in the midst of our sin and rebellion and separation. That loving God came into human history as the man Jesus Christ. He lived a life that we can't live, a life without sin. He died a death that we should have died, the debt for our sin. And he raised from death, achieving the thing that we could never accomplish on our own. A right relationship with God through forgiveness. This is the only way. We cannot come back to God through any good works that we do because your church attendance is not going to separate or close that gap at all. It is only Jesus. It's faith in Jesus. And this is the incredible good news of the gospel because it's not about you and what you've done. It's about what Jesus has done for you. He was buried and he rose. And this is what Paul says is absolutely essential. It's the gospel. And guys, the gospel speaks to every part of your life. Do you know that? I mean, so many times, like Christians, we think like the gospel just speaks to like, oh yeah, the gospel, that's what saved me. And now I'm on to like the more spiritual things. I'm learning to speak in tongues like the Corinthians, right? This is their problem. But the gospel speaks to our past, our present, and our future. It speaks to your past and saying your past has been settled. That Jesus entered into human history to die for your sins and raise you to new life. It speaks to your present, meaning your present is secure. That the resources of the gospel are sufficient for you to stand firm in the midst of everything that life throws at you because you're not alone. But God the Holy Spirit is with you, empowering you to meet and overcome the challenges of the everyday stuff of life. And it also speaks to your future, that your future is certain, that you no longer need to fear hell and death because of your sin. Because Jesus in his death and his resurrection has fixed all of that through faith. That he has a place for you in the eternal family of God because of what he has done. Not because of what anything that you have done. This is the gospel. This is grace. And some of you today, you need to realize that the point of your entire life has brought you to this place today. Doxa Church in Madison, Wisconsin. This is the point to every single one of your lives here. That some of you, you don't know Jesus. You haven't put your faith in him. This is the moment that God has brought you here to hear 1 Corinthians 15, one week out of 32 weeks where we're preaching through this book, and you're here to hear about the good news of Jesus Christ, him killed and resurrected. And this is where you come to faith. This is where you grab hold of the gospel that's in front of you, and you ask Jesus just to take your sin and to give you his righteousness, to escape the reality of hell, and to grab onto the eternity of heaven with him. Hear me on this. The gospel is good news because it's for you. And Paul is reminding us here that Jesus did it all. He lived, he died, he raised. And it's for you. And on the cross, in Jesus' last victory breath, he says, it is finished. And Doxa, because it's finished, that means we don't have to be. And that means we have a reason to sing, amen? This is the gospel. Christian, just let that sink in. This isn't just the message that saved you, but it's the essential message that sustains you and keeps you rooted in Christ as you walk through life.
And so Paul says the resurrection is historical, it's essential, and the last thing he shares is that the resurrection is also personal. Look at verse 8. It says, last of all, as to one ultimately born, he appeared to also me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. All right, I I absolutely love what Paul does here. All right, in the midst of just like this intellectual writing, he gets personal, telling us what the resurrection means in his own life. And he adds his own testimony to kind of like authenticate the resurrection. And he simply says that Jesus appeared to him, he opened his eyes, saved him, and now although an apostle, he feels like he's the least of them, totally unworthy. And we've studied the Bible enough and we've talked about Paul enough that we know why he feels like this way, right? Because if we look at his historical background, Paul was just a terrible man. He was a vile man, a hateful person. He persecuted the early church. This was his job. He went around, he oversaw the murder of Christians. He knew Jesus, but he hated Jesus. He heard the gospel, but he denied the gospel. But God. But God came to this terrible man. He appeared to him. He saved him. In the midst of all of his wrongdoing and his wrong believing, God flipped the script. And as I read this, because here's what I see. It's almost as Paul is saying, okay, here's all these, this historical stuff. It's so essential his resurrection is true. Like, I'm just, I, this is the best I can do. Here it is in front of you. But if that doesn't persuade you, if that's not enough, how do you explain my life? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying, if you don't believe all that stuff, can you just look at me? Because I, I don't know how you can explain what happened in my life. I mean, what happened to take me as a hater of Jesus to a lover and an apostle of Jesus? He's like, what happened to me that took me from like a persecutor of a church to become the pastor of many churches. He said, like, you got to understand, like, I don't know how to explain this except for Jesus and his resurrection. Guys, the reality is, is there's no reasonable explanation that can be found for Paul's conversion to Christ other than the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. And guys, this is my story. No one has known me before becoming a Christian, and I'm grateful for that. You get weird snapshot stories every once in a while, but guys, I have no reasonable explanation of why my life radically changed, except for Jesus. And we are surrounded with people in this room with stories like Paul, unfit for the kingdom of God because of our sin. Broken, messed up, vile people. But God broke in through the gospel of the resurrected Jesus and did something profound. The resurrection is good news with powerful transformative effects. And so maybe you came here with a friend, but you haven't come to faith in Jesus yet. If that's you, let me just give you this encouragement. Let me, I'll just take off the pastor hat. I'll put on like a, just a friend hat, a guy hat. And just say this. Ask your friend what happened. Ask them how they encountered the risen Jesus. And as you just sit and listen to their story, see the power of the resurrection and understand that this is not something for you just to examine, but for something for you to experience. That Jesus wants to do that in your life. The gospel is historical. It makes the most sense of the facts. 
The gospel is essential. It's the very heart of Christianity and the point of all of our lives. The gospel is personal. That's news that must be reckoned with and experienced at a heart level. And when you surrender your heart to the love and the grace of Jesus, an eruption of joy takes place because we realize that we are his and he is ours. And there's great assurance and there's security in this. And so I'll end with saying this. I don't know exactly where everybody is at in this room today and what's going on in all of your lives. But I do know this. If you don't know Jesus, you need Jesus. Just like every single one of us. The most important thing, more important than anything, more important than everything, is that you know Jesus. This is why Doxa Church exists. So that you would get a shot. That someone would be bold enough and loving enough just to tell you about the situation that you find yourself in because of sin and then give you the answer to that and just say, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't just love all the Christians in this room and all the Christians gathered around the churches in Madison and all over the world. He doesn't just love large numbers of Christians. He loves you. And someone in here needs to know that. He loves you. God loves you. And he's got a plan for you to seek you, to serve you, and to save you. Not because you're great, but because he's great. And this is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to give you guys a chance to come to Jesus. So pray with me. Father, we we love you, and even in light of this great news of the resurrection of Jesus that just validates all of his claims, we come to a place where we just understand, like, if the resurrection is true, then we have to listen to everything that Jesus said. If it's not true, then we shouldn't listen to everything he says. And so, Jesus, we hear you. We acknowledge that we're broken people. We acknowledge that there is a gap between us and you because of our sin. And God, I thank you that you opened my eyes to the gospel and that you brought me to yourself through Jesus, that you took my sin. And God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just cause every one of your people in here that have come to Jesus in faith just to remember that. And would that just well up in some worship, some wonder, some awe, and some praise as they remember even in that day that the gospel became so clear and you saved them. That this is the gospel that we stand in. That in the midst of all of our shortcomings and our present sin, that you're still there loving us. And so we don't have to fear death and hell or anything like that because we know that we're yours. And for those who are not walking with you and are in this room and they've heard the gospel, they've heard about the the good news of Jesus overcoming sin and death and hell, God, I just ask that you would just speak to them in a really real way. That you would cause them to just take a step towards you in faith, knowing that you'll run the rest of the way. So we thank you for the gospel. Jesus, we love you.